Building on a Firm Foundation Basics of the Catholic Faith A Catechism Series by David Rodriguez Sponsored by the Fatima Center Episode 20 Heresies Attacking Christ Given on November 10th, 2020 Praise be Jesus and Mary I'm David Rodriguez, Content Director of the Fatima Center, and we're building on a firm foundation as we study the basics of our Catholic faith. In the previous episode, we considered that extremely important question that our Lord is always posing to us. Who do you say that I am? And this is a question that Christ is always posing to his disciples, to his church, to all of mankind. Who do you say that I am? And across the history of the church, we've had numerous different heresies that attack this question, the true nature of who Jesus Christ is. Today, we're going to look at those heresies so that we have a better understanding of who our Lord is, because this has tremendous implications for every other facet of our life. As we mentioned last time, we don't want to slip into the spirit of indifferentism. Who Christ is, how we answer this question really does affect how we live, how we understand God, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the relationship between the two, like grace and free will, how we live our life and build our society. It is the most important question we really have to answer because it even impacts our eternal salvation. Let's go ahead and begin with our prayer. In nome Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in celis, Sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. Parem nostrum quotidianum da nobis oge, et ibite nobis debita nostra. Sicut de nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos a malo. Amen. Sancte Toma, ora pro nobis. In nomine Patris, Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. So, as we're studying our basic catechism, when we're learning the faith, we always know that the true faith is that Jesus Christ is both God and man. Fully God and fully man. Perfect God and perfect man. If we want to be a little bit more specific, we would say that Jesus is a divine person with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. And those two natures are united in the one divine person of Christ. If you want to get sort of technical, he's not a human person. Why, why do we say this? Why would we say that that's wrong? Because he has always existed. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He pre-exists all creation. He's always been there, eternally begotten of the Father. So he's always been a divine person. However, at one moment in time, at the moment of the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel was sent to the Blessed Virgin Mary, Ave Maria, and she gave her fiat, that is when the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, assumed a human nature. He took on flesh to dwell amongst us in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost. So he assumes a human nature and unites those two natures, the human to the divine, in sort of a most perfect marriage in his one person. So this is the mystery of the Incarnation. Another technical term for that union of the two natures in the one person 
is the hypostatic union. It has a long history, it has its origins in the Greek language and the Greek philosophical system, and we're about to look a little bit at how that was sort of fleshed out. But when we say hypostatic union, we're referring to a singular and unique mystery that is the person of Christ. How in this one person there are two natures that are perfectly, that are complete, that are distinct, that remain separate, and yet are perfectly united. That's the mystery that we can't explain, and that's what was being attacked because people were trying to explain it. So you have this long history, I think especially in the Greek East, where reason was exalted. You had great philosophers and a great philosophical tradition. They were always trying to explain all these mysteries. And so they're trying to explain this mystery, which you're never going to be able to fully explain it. We can understand it and give some of that basic outline of it. But to really get down to how it all works, that's a mystery of God and man's never going to know. So all these heresies are basically a series of attempts to explain that. I think another reason why they fomented in the East is because the emperor got involved. This is a long story. I won't go into all the details. I'm going to give you the cliff notes, but certainly politics are very much involved. Personalities and antagonisms involved. Even the imprecision of language and how it gets translated in different philosophical thought and systems gets involved. Uh, if you study this more in depth, you read more about that. But really the end of it is that oftentimes the emperor, who at this time is in the east because the west has fallen uh, to the barbaric invasions, so the emperor in the east at Constantinople often got involved in these issues. This is a kind of heresy that we call Caesaropapism, where the Caesar, the emperor, or the king, also wants to consider himself the pope, to have authority over the church. You see this again in Henry VIII in England when he starts his Anglican church. You see this in all these national churches where they want the state to be in charge of the church. That is still with us, the state overseeing the church. We're seeing that come more and more about. So this is that ugly heresy of Caesaropapism that always has been with us for a very long time, as I say, even since the time of the Roman Empire. And so what happens is the emperor often takes the wrong side, takes the heretical side, listens to bad bishops or bad patriarchs, and Rome and the Pope would have to step in and correct it, but the East often would fall into a schism. It's kind of like a yo-yo. They would go into schism for 30, 40 years, and then you'd get maybe a good emperor who would listen to the Pope and they'd come back. But it is a long story of many martyrdoms, of many theological debates, of the great councils of the early church where all these things were being defined. Many men shed their blood, certainly spent their effort in proclaiming the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So I hope you also realize this is very important for us. And almost all of these heresies were starting off in the East with Rome preserving the Orthodox and true Catholic faith and always having to sort of correct the East. And when they didn't want to listen because one group would be splitting off into heresy, then having to place them in formal schism until they repented and came back. And the East was constantly doing that until sort of like that last schism where they left and well, we're still waiting for them to come back. So, very briefly, what is this history? Again, it is important because it does affect salvation. Uh, it affects many things. One of the basic principles that guided the Church Fathers, for example, was if it was not assumed, meaning if Christ did not assume it, if it was not assumed, it cannot be saved. So Christ had to assume the full human nature. He has to have a human body or our bodies can't be saved in heaven. He has to have a human mind and a human will or those things can't be saved. They're being saved because they're being united, brought into that communion of life, as we talked about before, that is the Blessed Trinity. By virtue of us being members of the mystical body of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, we're brought into the whole divine life and love of the Trinity. But therefore, Christ had to assume 
all of humanity. So, you have all these different ways that sort of attacked it. One way or the other, the devil was trying to destroy that truth about Christ. The very sort of first ones are perhaps the most rudimentary, the most rustic, if you will, where you just deny that our Lord is human, or you just deny that he is God. So, for example, you had the Ebionites, and they were a, you could say, Jewish Christian sect that really wanted to hold on to monotheism, so they wouldn't say that Jesus was actually God. And then on the other side, you sort of had the Gnostics, or the Docetists, who didn't like the material world, didn't like the flesh. And so God could not have taken on human flesh, humanity. He has to remain pure spirit. It's just this divine spark that dwells in a human body for a little while. So they're really denying his humanity. And you still see those heresies floating around today. They're not gone. But they were condemned by the church. Then things got a little bit more nuanced. This is now after the time that Constantine has made the Christian faith legal. And then you have the great heresy of Arianism. And so, again, there's variations within Arianism, but the basic thing is that they would deny that the Son was equal to the Father. So their catchphrase was, there was a time when he was not. He is referring to Jesus Christ. So he was created by God. You know, you had the semi-Arians who would say things like, well, we can still accept that Jesus is divine, but, but nevertheless he was created by God. He doesn't have the same substance or the same essence as God. There's, there's some difference between the essence of God the Father and the essence of God the Son. They're not one and the same God. So those are the semi-Arians also denying the very true nature of Christ. And then you had Apollinarius. So Apollinarius was challenging the semi-Arians. And he says, look, there is a human mind and there is a human sensitive soul and then there's the human body. Right, so if you go back to this, why well, we studied that anthropology some time ago, because we know that according to that ancient thought of Aristotle, all things that are alive, that are animate, have a soul. That's what soul means, anima. So what Apollinarius was saying, he was sort of distinguishing in the human soul those powers that are specifically human, calling that the rational soul, you know, the mind and the will, and then those that we share in common with the beasts. And he's looking at that as the sensitive soul. And he's saying all our Lord did was he replaced the human soul with the divine logos so that he still has the sensitive soul of man and the human body of man. But that, of course, means he's not really man because what our essence is, is our mind and our will. And remember, if those are not assumed, then those are not going to be saved. And that's where sin resides. Sin resides in our will. So Apollinarianism is condemned as a heresy. And then, you know, they keep trying to refine these. Uh, the politics got involved because the great patriarchs at that time, it's Alexandria and Antioch, the two major seas, and they were often vying for power over the Sea of Constantinople, trying to influence it and the emperor. Alexandria often had the tendency to overemphasize the divinity of Christ, let's say to somewhat the exclusion of the humanity, and Antioch would emphasize the humanity of Christ, let's say not so much the divinity. Again, these are simplifications, because I'm, again, giving Cliff Notes versions, and when the emperor or the patriarch of Constantinople would take the wrong side on one of these extremes, it was the Pope in Rome who had to come in and you know, settle the argument. So, you have Nestorius, who is from the Antiochian school, and he becomes patriarch of Constantinople. Whether or not he even held the heresy named after him is another debate of history, but the point is, he's basically said that there are two sons, so there are two persons 
that are, let's say, morally united. So yes, he's a complete man, and he's also the complete son of God, and the two persons got together in this one sort of moral union. And the best way they expressed this was by saying that Mary can be called the mother of Jesus, but she cannot be called the mother of God. As if Mary was the mother of the person with the human nature, but not the mother of the person with the divine nature which, as you probably already realized, echoes very much what the Protestants have been saying for centuries now. So, we could say that the Protestants have that Nestorian error when it comes to their Christology, amongst others. And, of course, the Church said, no, that is wrong. They condemned it at the Council of Ephesus, where the Church famously proclaimed the title for Mary of Theotokos, that she is the God-bearer, that she is the Mother of God. This defense was largely spearheaded by the great Sir of Alexandria, bishop and doctor of the church. But then you had another extreme that was stemming more from Alexandria, monophysitism. Mono means one, physis means nature. And they basically held that one person and one nature. They could agree that Christ still had a human nature, but the way they sort of explained it, it was you could take a drop of fresh water and put it into an ocean of salt water. I mean, in effect, that fresh water is going to become salt water, and then you really just have one thing. So that's kind of how they saw the human nature being dropped into the divine nature, the divine nature being so much greater and powerful that, in effect, it becomes one thing. Yes, he's got this unique nature that nobody else has, that God the Father doesn't have, and that humans don't have, but it's his one nature. And that was their era, the Monophysites, and that got slightly nuanced into monothelitism. Thelus is the will. So then it was basically saying, okay, no, it's just the will that is different. So Christ only has one will, and it's a divine will. And of course, that was condemned. Uh, you even had the heresy of iconoclasm then, where you could not represent a picture of Christ. You couldn't sort of see his humanity, real great emphasis on the divinity. And as I said, with all of these, there would be heresies and there would be schisms. There would be great popes who even gave their life for this, like Pope Martin I. There are also popes who slipped into some of these heresies because they didn't defend the truth, like Honorius. It's a long history, and someone, I think it's, it's natural, they might be saying, well, why is this so nuanced? What's so important about this? Well, it's important because understanding who our Lord really is, is going to affect how we see, as I said, salvation. It has to be assumed by Christ to be saved. And it's even going to affect this great question of grace and free will, because you always have those extremes, those people who emphasize grace too much, that's like emphasizing the divinity too much. And those who emphasize free will too much, that's like emphasizing the humanity of Christ too much. So those who emphasize free will are like the Pelagians. Oh, we humans can achieve salvation on our own. We can create paradise here on earth, in Eden, right? You've got a lot of that in communism and socialism. That's going on right now in this effort to create this new world order and the global compact on education. Everything is very natural. Men can achieve it on their own. You also have the whole emphasis on the divine where basically men do nothing. We're so wretched that human nature can never be healed. Human nature can never be affected by grace to be made better. It's just God who covers us, but there's no real union there. There's no real transformation. That's a whole Protestant error that led to so many problems, the total depravity of John Calvin. So you can see that those errors stay with us and people still hold them today. And then you misunderstand how God's supposed to work in us. You know, it is all of my will. Salvation depends completely on everything that I do. I've got to cooperate with God's grace. But it also depends completely on God. You know, I could do everything, but if God doesn't give grace, then there's no way I can be saved. Man on his own can't be good. He needs God's grace. But with God's grace, man can be good. Uh, you know, you're seeing the mystery of the incarnation, the hypostatic union there. 
And that is grossly misunderstood. I think even in our own lives, we're like, you know, a yo-yo going back and forth between those two errors that the East so often went back, emphasizing his divinity more, emphasizing his humanity, and not finding the proper balance, that golden mean that we always need to strive for in our spiritual life. This affects everything. I mean, it affects every, every virtue. For example, obedience. Obedience is expressed very well by our Lord who says, not my will, but thy will. It's not my human will, but the divine will. But our Lord really has to have a human will to be able to say that, and he really has to conform his will to his Father's, which is the essence of the spiritual life. I mean, that's holiness, conformity to the will of God. It's what each one of us must do. But we have to realize that we are still going to have our distinct human will that must conform itself to God's will. And you even can sort of understand what false obedience is then. I don't conform my will to another human's, I'm conforming my will to God's. And the reason that I can conform myself to another human will, let's say my parents if I'm a child, or my priest or the Pope, is precisely because God's will has chosen to give that human, a certain, that human will a certain level of authority, and he's representing the divine will, so I obey him. Because by obeying him, I'm really obeying God. But if that human authority decides to oppose his will to God's will and put his will somewhere else, I can no longer obey that human will because ultimately I've got to obey God. Right? So that's a false obedience. You don't obey a human will, even if it's an authority, when it's going against God's will. Understanding the mystery of who Christ really is correctly is going to enable us to make those kinds of distinctions which are so important in our practical daily lives, for example, right now, and how we're living out the Catholic faith in a time of great crisis and diabolical disorientation where there's a lot of darkness. Same thing, for example, with the virtue of humility. St. Francis, right, the seraphic saint, his favorite contemplation, he would spend all night doing this, is he would just contemplate the greatness of God. And, you know, spend time with that. And then he would descend down and contemplate his own wretched human condition. And he would think about that. And then he would go back and contemplate the greatness of God. And he would spend all night sort of going up and down, almost like along Jacob's ladder, ascending into heaven. And that's what true humility is. Right? Knowing who God is and knowing who I am. But again, you can't leave off either one of those elements. If we only focus on the wretchedness of man, which is true, you know, a lot of people want to deny that, but it is true... If we only do that, then we're going to fall into despair and hopelessness, right? A culture of death, suicide, that's also going on right now. People are slipping into hopelessness because we're only considering the great chastisements and the difficulties that we're enduring right now. We've also got to ascend up to heaven, but if you only consider the divinity of God and the greatness and His glory and His majesty and all that He does for us, then it's far too easy to get a false understanding of His mercy and to think that, oh, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm always going to be forgiven, Right? That's not humility either. That's a total false humility. But that's also running around today. You see that everywhere. Also, people getting canonized at their funerals, and people thinking that we can remain in sin and receive Holy Communion, remain in sin and still be right with God without any kind of conversion. You know, our Lady Fatima came and said, we've got to convert, we've got to repent. And that affects us. That affects the way we build the separation of church and state. It's misunderstood completely because there's like a total division. The two are not united. Again, you could think of in Christ, the church representing his, the divinity and the state representing his humanity. And so, yes, the two remain distinct, but they have to be united. And the will has to be conformed, right? The state must conform itself to the laws of God expressed by the laws of the church. So our entire understanding of church and state, is certainly here in the United States under Americanism, is flawed, because it's a Freemasonic idea that wants to separate church and state and ultimately put the state above the church.
Back to Cesaro Papism is really what this is. Back to men doing it on their own. So I hope you're realizing here is that there's a lot of issues in our practical lives, in our spiritual lives that are really affected by this nature of Christ and why it's important to understand these heresies. What we'll do is we'll conclude with the symbol of Chalcedon. I will post that online so you can download it yourselves. We'll put it up on the screen. But really think about it because all the truths of who Christ is, it's contained in this great statement. It was a profession of faith expressed, written up by Pope St. Leo the Great. Is one of the reasons why he's the Great. And it was sent over to the East. It was proclaimed at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD to try to put an end to all of these Christological heresies. I mean, they went on afterwards. But this is a definitive statement of the faith, infallible dogma. Let's look at it. The Church teaches. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent. Notice it's following tradition. And they're all agreed on this. Teach men to confess. We must confess it. It's got to be our belief. One and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, that is a rational soul and body, so he's got the full humanity, but he's consubstantial, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. So he has both natures. In all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union, that's the hypostatic union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us. And the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So see, this is tradition. It's all the way from the Old Testament. It's what our Lord himself revealed. And it's what tradition and the Holy Fathers, the apostles have all handed on to us. We must believe this. Our salvation depends upon it. And this is the Catholic faith. As I said last time, a very succinct way of saying it. Because our Blessed Mother defeats all heresies. Is that he is Son of God. And he is son of Mary. He has the divine nature and he's a human nature. But because he's a son, he's only one person. Cannot be two. So we could say he's the son of the blessed ever virgin Mary. She is the mother of God. The Theotokos. There's a lot more to say about who our Lord is. Some of the things that he does for us. You know, next time we'll be looking at that. How he is, for example, our savior. How he is our king. How he is our judge. But for now... We'll close with our prayer and I encourage you to consider asking yourself that very important question. Jesus is asking it of us. Who do you say that I am? In nome Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicuterat in principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. And may you have a most blessed and grace-filled week. 
hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website www.fatima.org Immaculate Heart of Mary Ora Pro Nobis Thank you.